You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Benjamin Ginsburg, a Republican election lawyer who helped lead the 2000 Florida GOP recount legal strategy, joined the Post to discuss Monday's electoral college vote and ways to strengthen the country's election system. Let's listen. Great, great to have you here. Great to see you again virtually. Uh, what are you looking for today, Ben, with the Electoral College uh, as it convenes? Well, the Electoral College is is really um, one of those events with great pomp and history to it that mm. often goes sort of unremarked by all but those who are electors. Today, there's obviously a lot more focus on it, and I think you'll have uh, much more attention to this institution of, of our democracy, which is good. I mean, the electors all sign the, uh, their ballots uh, denoting who they're voting for. Uh, I think we'll, we'll see kind of breathless coverage on it. And um, from there, you just look to see if there are uh, any, any faithless electors, people who sort of go off the reservation and vote for somebody other than their declared candidates in the state. And uh, I suppose there's a little bit of, uh, of a threat of demonstrations around some of those electoral college votes, which is certainly out of the ordinary. You said that the electors have to actually sign their ballots. Does that mean they have to meet in person even though we're in the middle of a pandemic? Uh, it does. I think that uh, the states have socially distant procedures set up I think a couple of them, uh, including Nevada, are actually meeting virtually. I suppose DocuSign is not quite the same as signing an, an actual an actual electoral ballot. Have you witnessed any of these electoral college meetings in the past? And what are you what have you learned about how the process actually works? Because most people, as you say, haven't paid attention to these things over the years. So what how does it unfold as it happens across the country in different states? Well, it's very formulaic, really. I mean, it's been done the same way forever, but the electoral, uh, the electors will meet in each state capital generally. There'll be a room uh, arrayed for all of them to sit with desks. Uh, they get passed out the ballots, one for president and one for vice president. They mark uh, their ballot, they sign their ballots. Those are then collected. Uh, there's a certificate uh, totaling all the votes that's prepared. Uh, each state's governor, uh, in most states it's the governor, but the, the appropriate official will have signed what's called a certificate of attainment denoting the popular vote from that election. Then those two certificates are combined. One copy is sent to the president of the Senate here in Washington, who is Mike Pence, is the vice president. Two are sent to the National Archivist. Two are sent to the Secretary of State of that state. And then one backup copy goes to the uh, district, federal district court in the locale where the electors meet. So there is a, a firm process in place for this. How does somebody become an elector? They are named uh, by each state party in a state. So that there were a slate of Biden electors named by the Democratic Party in each state and a slate of Trump electors uh, named by the Republican Party in each state. And then the winner of the popular vote in that state gets to gets to have his electors uh, go to the state capitol. 
what happens to the electors from the other side? They just stand idle? Uh, they stand idle, yes. They, uh, they get to go bowling today. <laughs> so this term you used, faithless elector, let's say in a state president-elect Biden won, uh, someone decides in a state capitol today from the Biden slate of electors, a Democrat perhaps, to vote for President Trump. Is that what a faithless elector is? And do they just randomly decide to do that and they can actually decide to vote against the state certification? Uh, well, in 33 states, there are enforceable rules, enforceable uh, varying degrees, which bind electors to the winner of the popular vote in that state, including most of the battleground states for today. So uh, due to a Supreme Court case last summer, uh, in those 33 states, if, a, if an elector votes contrary to the popular vote in that state, then their vote would be nullified and a substitute elector would be allowed to cast the vote for the winner uh, in that state. Uh, in the other 17, uh, yeah, or 18 with the District of Columbia, uh, yes, they could, a Biden elector could vote for Donald Trump. Historically, there have been well less than 200 faithless electors in our history, and mostly they're protest votes. So, you know, they'll vote for, oh, say, Bob Costa, just to make the point that neither of the two candidates are, uh, are right for them. I'm not soliciting any votes from electors today, let it be <laughs> clear. That is not part of this agenda. Uh, ben, have you, do you believe President Trump's allies have any path here to causing trouble uh, to upending the election results in any way today? Well, there, there's no way to upend the election results today. Uh, causing trouble is a much lower bar to pass. And so, uh, I, I, you know, nothing, nothing within the legislative chambers themselves done by the electors, I think, will change the result we're going to see at the end of the day. So that um, today is the day that it really is over. We said that about five times already, but but this is the day when it all becomes official. Is that also because of the Supreme Court making its decision on Friday about the Texas case? Does that effectively close the Supreme Court as a pathway for President Trump? Well, I think it does. I mean, he, he lost decisively, overwhelmingly, with a legal back of the hand twice in four days at the Supreme Court last week. And remember, he had... Uh, really bragged about how the Supreme Court was his Supreme Court because he had mm. named a, a third of the court. Uh, and it is a 6-3 conservative majority. And he lost in both those cases in the most decisive way possible. The Supreme Court didn't even see enough merit in either of the actions to write an opinion. Instead, they were summary dismissals. And so that that you know, they can, the Trump forces can file additional cases uh, in the states, I suppose, but, um, but it's over. But President Trump doesn't want to say it's over. So where does that leave this whole situation? Well, it leaves the situation uh, in the sense that, that January 6th is coming up. That's the date that the Electoral College votes are certified by Congress. And then January 20th is, is coming right up. 
And so it's over in that sense. I mean, I, I think one of the interesting there is a there is a at this point only graceful way to resolve this if they wanted to. I mean, what Donald Trump's done is put Republicans, especially in Congress, but certainly those 18 attorney generals that signed on to the Texas brief in a really kind of precarious, uncomfortable position in taking non-meritorious arguments for the AGs and for not accepting the tenet of the peaceful transfer of power in the case of members of Congress. And uh, one thing that could happen today is that Republicans, senators, and representatives will start saying, of course, Joe Biden's the next president and, and isolating Donald Trump even further. The right way to do this, which it's not at all clear they'll be able to pull off, is for Senator McConnell and other senators and, and Kevin McCarthy and other members of the House to go to the president and say, look, we now have to come out and acknowledge that Joe Biden won this election. And sir, you can be at the front of this parade or get run over by the parade. And we'd like you to, you don't have to concede, you just have to acknowledge the inevitable that Joe Biden's gonna be the president. And, uh, and, and and let's move on. You've known these players for years, Leader McConnell, Minority Leader McCarthy. Will they go to the president? Well, I think they might. I, I will say that the really complicating factor in all this is the Georgia Senate runoffs for control of the Senate, which is obviously hugely important. And the electoral coalitions of Georgia voters right now is really tenuous. And uh, it, 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 is a, it is a big gap Republicans have to fill between uh, low propensity voters who came out just to vote for Donald Trump, who Republicans need to bring uh, David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler over the finish line. So the Republicans will be very concerned by that. That's why it is, there is at least a small chance that Leader McConnell might suggest to the president that he needs to get in front of the campaign, say we're going to continue to look for fraud, but this election's over, and uh, then figure out uh, an acceptable message to, to try and, and thread both what needs to happen under the Constitution and the electoral needle in, uh, in, Florida, in Georgia. You mentioned January 6th when Congress convened. So the Electoral College meets today. They cast their ballots across the country. They sign their ballots. They put them in the mail. Then they come to Congress. What happens then? Well, they're supposed to arrive by December 23rd. They then uh, sit with the president of the Senate and the National Archivist until January 6th. That's when the new Congress uh, will uh, deal with the Electoral College. Procedurally, what happens is that the president of the Senate, who is Mike Pence, uh, will sit on the dais, open an envelope, read the results from that state. Uh, and at that point, uh, members can raise objections to it. Uh, but the procedure is for the president of the Senate to do that. Vice presidents have done that even in awkward electoral situations. Al Gore did it in 2001. Joe Biden did it in 2017. Uh, just, just a fun historical fact, Hubert Humphrey in 1969 was the sitting vice president, had just lost as a candidate for Senate, 
and decided not to preside over the Senate that day. So it went to the uh, president pro tem, who I believe was Richard Russell from Georgia, ironically enough. Um, but what will happen is all the, the state's totals will be read uh, on January 6th. Members of the House and Senate can raise objections. Uh, if they raise objections, then it's a two, each chamber uh, goes off by itself. It's a two-hour debate over that. Uh, both sides need to agree, both the House and the Senate need to agree to an objection to have it valid. So as a realistic matter, there's no way that objections to the Electoral College are going to win since Democrats uh, do control the House. And enough Republican senators have acknowledged Joe Biden's victory that there won't be a majority there. Just by frame of well, reference, no, one ahead. other fun point, the, the, the Congress has managed to go through the, electoral, the counting of the electoral uh, uh, college ballots in as little as 23 minutes. But since mm -hmm. there appear to be five states up for contention, it could go 10 hours or more on January 6th this year. So let's say a member of the House comes over to the Senate and says, I, I raise an objection. Does that mean, as you said, that the House and Senate couldn't perhaps immediately consider that objection? What needs to be done for the House and Senate to take that break of two hours? Uh, if both the member of the House and a member of the Senate raise the objections in writing, then that triggers the two-hour uh, debate period in each chamber. There is just a one from each chamber. Way. That's all you need. Just one, one from just each one chamber? from each chamber. That's all you need. That's why the process could be slow on January sixth. Mm -hmm. There is a way when each uh, chamber meets separately for a motion to table the objections to be heard right away, it, it, it would be unusual for the bodies to agree to that, though. But you could, uh, I don't want to get ahead of the news, but I, as a reporter, I could certainly see a member of the House, a Republican member allied with President Trump, working with a Trump ally in the Senate to raise a joint objection in early January. Yeah, and they may choose to do that to try and air the issue of uh, the wrongs that they perceive from this election. Uh, it will be will be a little bit of theater. Well, it'll be all theater uh, because again, the the votes are pretty certain. So it's a question I suspect if you're a, a Trump supporter of do you want the platform to raise the issues but with the certainty that you're gonna lose and lose convincingly. Uh, and again, look, the, the problem that the Trump forces have had throughout this process is that they've been able to produce no evidence, no factual evidence of systemic fraud. And that's going to, you know, that evidence just doesn't exist. So the issue for them will be whether they wanna take a series of losses again on January 6th. But is, is there any part of the procedure or the law that could make this more than theater on January 6th? Uh, could, could it come to a vote in some way over an objection? I'm just trying to understand how this could play out, because I, I know members of the House on the Republican side, my sources, some of them, are planning to move ahead with some kind of gambit. I just wonder, what's the end game beyond theater, if any, for them? Well, I don't think that there is any 
real endgame strategy that is going to in any way, shape, manner, or form change the results of the Electoral College. Uh, they can slow things down and raise procedural objections. And, you know, parenthetically, Bob, it's interesting. There are 126 members of the House and a number of members of the Senate who probably feel kind of uncomfortable given the Supreme Court decisions in Texas and the, the definitive nature of the Biden victory at this point. So if the Trump supporters in the House and Senate do force a vote somehow on a state's uh, electoral college delegation, uh, then that gives the other members of the House and Senate the platform to kind of get right with history and recognize that President Trump has now completely uh, explored all his legal options. They are depleted, and it is time to take a vote the way the Constitution envisions, which is losers accepting results. You mentioned that story about Hubert Humphrey. Intriguing. What about Vice President Pence? I mean, how do you believe he's going to handle his role? And is his role to be the person uh, to read those results up at the dais in, in the Senate? He would be the person to read the results, just like Al Gore did in 2001 after the, the Florida recount. So he would be the person to do it. Uh, and I, I, I have no particular insight that he would not fulfill his constitutionally mandated role. But again, there is the, the Hubert Humphrey precedent where he might not do it. What do you think right now about the Republican Party and why so many members of it at a leadership level in the House have gone along with his push against uh, the election result? Well, up until this point, uh, they, have, they have been able to say he is exploring all his legal options. Uh, but that point is now passed. And so uh, my sense is that there is growing discomfort amongst the majority of Republican senators and representatives about the position that they're in. I mean, after all, the president uh, has, has kind of been wrong about a lot. He made the accusation that our elections were fraudulent, hasn't been able to produce any evidence. Uh, the Republican Party and the Trump campaign and Republican entities filed a number of lawsuits before the election on various voting procedures with an abysmal uh, record of failure in winning those cases. The post-election litigation uh, is like one in 57, and the one was a pretty partial victory, including uh, uh, defeats at the hands of many Trump-appointed judges across the board. So what are they following uh, is, is, I think, you know, we gave the president some rope, but now uh, we do have to look to the country. And either today or certainly January 6th, the day after the Georgia special election, is the time where Republicans kind of can get right uh, with things. Uh, why they why they decided to follow the president this way will, uh, I, I think, be a subject of discussion for many years, especially amongst themselves. I mean, the the abandonment of conservative principles in the face of kind of the Trumpian cult of personality 
will be something folks will write a, will write about for a long time. And perhaps this Texas suit uh, by the Texas Attorney General is the ultimate example of that, because that suit stood the fundamental conservative principle of states' rights on its head. Remember, Republicans have always believed strongly in states' rights. In fact, mm -hmm. President Trump invoked states' rights to say uh, we couldn't have a national uh, program to buy protective gear for, uh, for workers. We couldn't do a national testing program, couldn't do uh, contact tracing, because that was all something left to the states. We are uh, a system where states have a great control over their own activities. The Constitution gives states the right to run the time, place, and manner of their own elections. And then this lawsuit by the Texas AG stands that principle on its head and says either the U.S. Supreme Court, a federal institution, or another state can tell Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, and, and uh, Wisconsin how to run their elections. And that's an abandonment of principle that I think is bothering a number of Republican elected officials. Ben, you co-chaired the bipartisan 2013 Presidential Commission on Election Administration. You also recently wrote an op-ed for our paper, The Washington Post, saying we may not be so lucky next time. And let me read a quote from that article. Quote, the United States might not be so lucky next time. What if the 2020 election had been as close as it was in 2000 and the outcome hinged on a state or states with a truly narrow margin? How would the country have fared under a Trump-style assault on democracy's foundations. In light of that op-ed and your experience, what should be done and what is the risk? Well, the risk is the risk is pretty great. I mean, we were we were, I think, spared this time because the margins were so great. Uh, you know, 306 votes in the Electoral College and a seven million uh, vote margin uh, means it wasn't really close. The closest state was still over 10,000 vote margin, um, you know, with a frame of reference in, in Florida 2000 of 537 votes, that's a pretty big difference. But the way that um, the, the sort of inability to accept the results by the loser this time and the cracks in a number of laws would suggest uh, a real look uh, at both the federal and state level on the laws that govern our elections. Uh, you have to be careful about the split between federal and state. The federal side, everything we've been talking about today with the Electoral College and the procedures um, that Congress goes through is contained in something called the Electoral Count Act of 1887. Uh, it is a um, muddled law, to say the least, and had there been uh, a real challenge in any of the states involving dueling uh, slates of electors, we would have been in some, in some really deep and complicated litigation. So that's one thing that should be done on the federal level. On the state level, uh, we saw a, a lack of consensus over the virtues of absentee balloting, mail-in balloting, uh, and their safety. And there should be sort of a best practices model legislation to be adapted uh, in the states uh, because of that. There were things like 
vehicles of voting, like drop boxes. Why we got in litigation over something as easily solvable as drop boxes, I'm not sure. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, still does have before it a case out of Pennsylvania in which it can answer two important questions to resolve problems in the future. One is whether the legislature itself is the only uh, creator of laws involving elections or whether it's implicit that administrative agencies and a state judiciary can review its laws. And that's an important um, issue to deal with. And then the, the question of what is election day? Do all ballots have to be received by election day? So a number of states made the policy judgment to extend the deadline in which absentee ballots postmarked by election day could be received. Other states said election day means election day. We want to get our results out quickly uh, to, stop, uh, to stop chaos. And so that's uh, an issue that could be resolved. Ben, we've been talking about the Texas case. The Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton has now been uh, reported to be under investigation by the FBI for using his office to benefit a wealthy donor. Do you have any comment on that case or Paxton? <laughs> well, I don't know the details of it other than than what's been reported, which is that a number of people who worked in the office uh, raised objections to the help he gave with his official title and powers to a donor. That is a serious investigation. And he's also under uh, investigation for securities violations before he became uh, the Texas Attorney General. And there, there has been um, uh, some discussion about whether his activities in this case is really a plea for a presidential pardon. Uh, I would say that the, the uh, amount of discussion on that issue certainly has raised eyebrows kind of universally about his motivations. And what about Attorney General Bill Barr? What's your assessment about how he has handled this moment? Well, it seems to me he gets, um, he gets kudos for two things. Number one, he said forthrightly and plainly that uh, in everything that the FBI had investigated, he saw no evidence of systemic fraud that would change the results of the election. That was an important statement, as was the statement by Chris Krebs in the Department of Homeland Security uh, saying basically the same thing. Uh, and, uh, and Attorney General Barr, I mean, did the right thing, followed consistent Justice Department policy in resisting the pressures from the president to make public the investigation of Hunter Biden before the election. And final question here, Ben. Years ago, uh, I remember visiting then Governor Romney before he was Senator Romney. He was about to mount another presidential bid. You were there uh, with his as his counsel, his campaign counsel. As you look ahead to 2024, do you think Romney's going to get back in the ring, run for president again? <laughs> I think it's going to be I think it's going to be a very crowded ring. Uh, and uh, and and I don't know. But he, he certainly has carved a principal path. Uh, that looks pretty good in uh, in retrospect in in the values that he uh, that he's put forward. Would you help him out if he chose to run again? Oh, I'm retired now, Bob. Oh, you don't seem very retired to me, Ben. <laughs> Writing these op-eds for the Post, helping us here this morning. 
I really appreciate it, Ben. Thanks, Bob. Great to be with you. Thank you. And thank you all for watching and joining us this morning, Electoral College Day. The Washington Post is going to have wall-to-wall -wall coverage of the Electoral College. And to make sure uh, you, you're up to speed on what each state is doing, just go to WashingtonPost.com or our social media accounts. It's all there uh, to make sure that you have minute-by-minute minute information on what people are doing, whether there are faithless electors. And we're glad we had Ben Ginsburg here this morning to explain that concept and, and how it all plays out. This afternoon at Washington Post Live, as we continue our coverage of national news, Jonathan Capehart, my colleague, at 11 a.m., will have uh, uh, the next episode in our Race in America series with two former attorney generals, Loretta Lynch, Alberto Gonzalez. They'll be here with Jonathan Capehart, 11 a.m. Eastern this Monday morning. And at 2 p.m., Mary Jordan, the great author and Washington Post writer, she'll be here for an important program on the racial wealth gap. So make sure to bookmark your calendar today for 11 and 2 o'clock. Uh, really appreciate you joining us for this early conversation. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.